Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shomana Xavier, and I hope you're well and staying safe wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we are joined by Amir Artaban Sadaget, who is a lecturer at the University of Toronto, to discuss his new book, Translating Rumi into the West, A Linguistic Conundrum and Beyond, published by Rutledge this year in 2023. Rumi, the 13th century Muslim Persian mystic, is a best-selling poet, of course, especially in the English language world. But how do his works of translation and adaptations into English language stand in terms of literal and cultural translations into the West? Sadaqat explores these important questions from translation studies perspective, especially with the focus on questions of semiotics. The book addresses linguistic and pragmatic questions of translation, such as how text, gender, language, and lexicon can or cannot be translated to important challenges, particularly with Rumi's poetry, which are deeply tied to kinetic and musical dimensions that also perhaps cannot be translated. What then are the ethical challenges to these paradoxes of untranslatability and the reception politics of Rumi into the global West? This, these are some of the questions the book explores. This book will be of interest to any Rumi enthusiast, which I think is a lot of people out there, scholars of translation, mysticism, Sufism, Persian, Iranian studies, and much more. In our conversation today, we spoke about Rumi and mysticism, the challenges of translating, for instance, gender or cultural aspects and mystical work of Rumi in text, and the ethics of translation and the responsibilities of translators to be transparent with their projects to the reader. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Amir Artaban Sadaqat about his new book, Translating Rumi into the West, Linguistic Conundrum and Beyond. Hi, Amir. Thank you so much for joining us in the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast to talk about your book, Translating Rumi into the West, A Linguistic Conundrum and Beyond. Uh, How are you doing today? Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so um, we have a tradition in the podcast that when we do meet with our authors of books, we uh, like to ask a little bit about their intellectual journey. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what your academic or intellectual background and journey is and what led you to writing this particular book on Rumi and translation. Well, uh, I'll begin with the last part of your question. Uh, this is uh, the the my... <laughs> This is part of my uh, uh, PhD thesis research, um, which I turned into this book, uh, the thesis that I defended seven years ago. So my um, background was engineering uh, back home in Iran. Um, um, But then I uh, changed to French literature, went to Paris, um, got my PhD in translation studies, um, doing a lot of semiotics and linguistics. Um, but my PhD thesis was on the reception of Rumi in the Western, but more specifically English-speaking and French-speaking uh, societies. So France, uh, the UK, um, and all over North America. So that was my uh, PhD defended in 2015, on which I worked for seven years. Um and I uh, was not particularly familiar with Rumi before that because I was more in the um, I had worked more in the in the field of linguistics and semiotics, um, but yeah, that was the um, advice of my uh, supervisor to look into something uh, which makes use of my knowledge of Persian and Persian literature. Voila! So <laughs> I worked on uh, Rumi. Um, in starting in 2009, um, this book 
is the result of my work in um well my collaboration with the uh Toronto Initiative for Iranian Studies. Um, um so I had I had a couple of lectures there uh, at the University of Toronto, um, presided over by uh Dr. Tavakoli at the University of Toronto, uh, Middle Eastern Studies. Um, so he suggested that I uh, turn this originally French thesis defended in uh, Paris um, uh, to English. So he, he said, well, rewrite it or translate it uh, into English. Um, while in the process of rewriting it, I changed probably more than 60% of it. <laughs> I definitely tried to expand my... Um, scope to the like um, the reception of Rumi in the entire West. So I looked into other languages. Those I had some rudimentary knowledge in, like Italian, Spanish, and some German, and those which I didn't know anything of, like Russian, um, using uh, tools, electronic digital tools, to, to find out about how Rumi has been received, how, how he's been translated in other non-English and French-speaking countries. Voilà. So that's the journey <laughs> that's it no it's amazing it's also amazing to think about that the book is itself a translation or a shift from another language like when you were working in French um your command of languages and the kind of the repertoire and landscape that you're working with or the corpus you're working with is amazing um I don't come from a linguistic background so I'm just kind of profoundly um stunned by some of the the labor and the art the archives and kind of the graphs and everything it was just like really interesting to sit with this book for a little bit and like think about it um I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your methodological process I mean I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit more but um like what was your did you have to journey or travel to get to particular archives like or as a translation scholar how would you describe your methodological process for perhaps people some of our listeners who may not know the field as much um so i used the archives i had uh, like at the corpus that i had prepared during my phd thesis i just um needed to um uh, broaden that um corpus by adding other translations other titles in other languages to it but generally well to begin with in back in 2010 when I started working on this research, um, I uh, looked at the uh, the two major works of Rumi, <clears throat> uh, chose the best editions available, um, the oldest and the best. So both, because <laughs> uh, they're not always synonymous, as as you know. Um, and then I tried to choose uh, some of the, uh, I mean, choose my excerpts uh, based on the availability of the maximum availability of translations in French and English. So um, my examples uh, are from poems or texts that have been of which we have the uh, highest number of translations in English and in French. So I tried to have like show how different translators uh, belonging to different eras and different cultural spheres translated the same uh, excerpt, same text or the same poem. Um, if if uh, we we would want to call it because uh, it's not always a poem it's it's a part of a poem it's just a few verses of a poem or um, or sometimes it is the entire poem in the, in the case of uh, quatrains uh, or uh, odes uh, uh, of of um, of the uh, divan divan of shams uh, the the divan of the shams of Tabriz um, so. That was that was the way I put together my um, uh, corpus, which uh, is a large one. It, it, it is available in French on online. Um, I think I have I have given the address on uh, in the book somewhere in the bibliography. Um, um, so so the original thesis is available online. It's it's a big one. It's it's five hundred pages, and then it is in two volumes. And the second volume is just my corpus, and that's about. 250, 300 pages. 
um, because when you add up all all the texts from Masnavi and from Divan, and you add all the translations in French and English, that becomes quite big. <laughs> that's that's a large chunk of uh, uh, of uh, of uh, of texts. So that was um, how I put together my corpus. Then I looked at the problem of translation reception in a in a broader uh, standpoint um, from different approaches, like from different points of view. So translation, well, that's that's pretty much the methodology we use in translation studies. Translation studies has. Well, to put to 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 put it in a nutshell, to to sum it up, a translation studies has three major levels of um, of analyzing of, of analysis: uh, the textual analysis, um, the analysis of well, the textual analysis at 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 the level of uh, enoncé or utterances. So how uh, translating a particular sentence, let's say, um, uh, is associated with difficulties from a certain language to another. Um, then you look at it from a larger, uh, in a larger scale, you look at the entire text, how a text, how the translation of a text can be analyzed. And then you go a level higher and you look at the politics of of translation so how um circumstances that are beyond the text or the translator uh can affect the quality of translation the quality and, and the modality of like how you translate it's not necessarily a a, a critical analysis of the quality it's just it could be perfectly descriptive showing how uh, certain circumstances can change how people translate and why people translate. Yeah. So yeah, the different levels are the text, the translator, and what what is beyond. So that could be editors, that could be the zeitgeist of, of, of the era in which the translator translates. Um, voila. So these are the three levels. Um, at the first level, I, I uh, had the linguistic um, analysis showing how translating from Persian to English or French or other, uh, by the same token, the, the Romance languages, they're, they're quite comparable to French and Germanic languages, they're quite comparable to English um, to some extent. I mean, I, th I think there's, there's more difference between German and, and English than between French and Spanish. Uh, in a way, especially when it comes to translation, uh, because they have different traditions of translation. Well, anyways, but um, so the, the linguistic difficulties um, talked about how translating Persian to begin with uh, can, can be challenging. What are the challenges and how translators have overcome those challenges? Then I looked at the... Um, uh, higher level, which is the style and rhetoric and and poetics of, of Rumi and how uh, poetics of Rumi, because of its association with music, um, can uh, pose a, a serious challenge to translation, to, 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 to the translation of his poetry, given that uh, it is almost impossible to recreate the original musicality of, of, of poetry. This is generally true, but this is all truer in the case of Rumi because um, in my to my knowledge, um, his poetry is um, one of the most important examples of um, musicality in Persian literature. And Persian literature ha has a structure, Persian and Arabic literatures, per Persian and Arabic poetries have uh, have this uh, ability because of their uh, prosodic system. They have a meter, the, the, the metric system of, of um, versification is um, chronemic. So it is based on timing, not only the lumbar syllables, so um, because of this, I mean, thanks to this, they they create uh, some of the most rhythmic 
um, and and musical uh, examples of poetry in in among all languages. Um, and then, well, I, I went to other questions. I I, I asked questions of uh, ethic uh, ethical nature, how ethics can I mean what role ethics uh, has to play in 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 uh, in translation, and how from ethical theories of translation we can evaluate uh, the perception of Rumi in the West. Um, and I had two approaches to 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 answer those questions. The the, the approaches coming from uh, I mean the, the approaches that looked into the factors associated with the the worldview of translators themselves, and then the politics of translation. And that was probably the the part that <laughs> would be most appealing to to your uh, uh, listeners <laughs> and viewers. Um, and that's that's the end of the book. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I think you've sure, given. Yeah. As a great overview, I think the book really has kind of the first two chapters deals with interesting or important um, questions in terms of translation studies, and then it shifts in the second half, or in the middle of the book, shifts into really focusing on Rumi. Um, I think one of the amazing things about your book is all these examples of how different translations have unfolded. Um, I really loved engaging that and like seeing them side by side in the charts that you outlay, outlaid. Um, uh, that's not a word, but <laughs> outlined, that's the word. Um, and that was really fantastic. Um, and then towards, as you say, the last two chapters deal with these broader ethical questions, which I think everybody who is thinking about um, Rumi, or as you say, a lot of our listeners are probably grappling with what, how do we deal with the kind of the ethical challenges of how Rumi is being translated by some folks. And I think you give us some really important language to navigate that landscape. Um, because, you know, any translation is going to be um, some form of a political reality that we have to engage with. Um, I, since you kind of outlined some of the aspects, I wonder if you could even do a broader stroke. You, translation studies is one of the major components or theoretical frameworks of the book. The other ones you highlight in your introduction chapter are these issues of mysticism, Sufism, Irfan, and how are we, the, even the problematics of defining what constitutes mysticism in relationship to Islam and, and not in relationship to non-Islam, which is another issue, particularly to translating Rumi. And then also now the figure of Rumi. We're kind of operating under the assumption that everybody knows who Rumi is, and I think most of our listeners do. But you do a really good job in the introduction to set up, well, why is this particular example of Rumi a productive or generative case study in relation to these broader questions of translation you're asking? And one of that has to do with this piece of well, what is the hermeneutic, like what is the worldview of Rumi that makes it even more challenging to do the translation, right? So can you talk a little bit about these bigger questions that you're also asking in relationship to translation studies and translation theories? Yeah, um, I think even the, the most basic questions of, of uh, linguistic nature um, um, could be quite juicy from a political standpoint. I mean, even even the driest linguistic uh, analysis of uh, analyses of um, of of something like gender or um, or the absence thereof uh, in in Persian and some other languages, and and how it can pose a serious problem um, that can be analyzed from a political standpoint is quite. Um, uh, quintessential of, of the kind of um, of the problem we're we're dealing with when it comes to translation of uh, agnostic uh, mystical poetry, especially from Persian. Uh, well, the question of gender. Well, we know that. When, I don't. I don't know if all the listeners are, are familiar with Persian, but in Persian we have you no know, differentiation between a third person, um, uh, fem, fem, uh, feminine and masculine. So. Um, <sighs> And on the other hand, we know that uh, mystical poetry is all about the unspoken, the the metaphorical, the metasemical, uh, the change of meaning, figurative meanings, and and yeah, well, it's it's mystical. <laughs> so uh, the, the the very fact that it, it, while translating into English or French or any other uh, gendered language, for that matter, 
um, the translator is is faced with the difficult choice of giving a gender to the third person, ungendered, agendered um, uh, pronouns or any reference, any um, uh, yeah, linguistic reference in in the text, in in the original text, uh, in 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 the um, source text. So um, when Rumi talks about uh, the beloved. Well, it, it actually, it's, it's easier in English because English is not completely gendered compared to Romance languages or German or, or, or Russian for that matter. Um, but still, you, you have to give a he or she somewhere. So, I mean, when it comes to pronouns, you, you, you need to uh, specify the gender. Um, in, in French or in Romance languages, that's even more difficult because uh, you have references everywhere to, to the gender. So how would you translate the beloved of, 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 of a mystical po of mystical poetry in Arabic or in, in, in Persian? Well, especially Persian, because in Persian there is no gender. You don't, you don't, you never know if the beloved of Rumi is is Shams, who's a guy, or is a girl, or is God. And if it is God, how would we translate how how would we gender God? Um, is it is it masculine? Is it feminine? Why? <laughs> and that that that, that actually that, that raises a lot of questions uh, of political and ethical. Um. So uh, the other issue, um, well, a big chunk of the book uh, is probably too technical for the majority of readers. Um. It's a semiotic analysis. I, I give a lot of uh, background in semiotics in order to justify uh, my analysis later on, both in the hermeneutic uh, and rhetoric and poetic analyses of, of translation of, of the poetry uh, and then its translation, Rumi's poetry, I mean. So um, that theoretical background aside, which is a good half of the second chapter, um, when we go to the hermeneutics of, of, of Rumi, um, um, I, I mean, I, I was interested in uh, observing how different translators have been also commentators of Rumi and how they have uh, they have found it difficult or even failed to um, play a role as translators rather than commentators and try to um, interpret the hermetic mystical message of the poetry. Uh, uh, by message, I mean just simply semantic content of, of the poetry um, for their non-Persian non speaking, English speaking or French speaking or well, other languages of readers. Um, so that was one of the problems uh, I, I found um, with most tra translators, but for some, <laughs> I, I, I tried to distinguish um, commentaries by tra tra translation, translators notes, commentaries by translators that I think uh, would um, damage the integrity of the of the original text in in the way that when something is mute in the uh, like or silent or unspoken of or, or mystical deliberately mystified by the poet, why should the translator uh, try to interpret it from a specific uh, standpoint affected influenced by specific ideologies? Um, so that that was what I have tried to show uh, a, a, a in my analysis, and I have tried to evaluate different um, eras and different tendencies, different waves of translation in terms of their um, prise de position, their their um, uh, positioning in 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 terms of. Uh, um, the hermeneutics of of the of the mystical poetry of Rumi, um, that is how to interpret what is essentially open to interpretation. I mean, what what is supposed to remain open to interpretation, even in the target text, even in English. Um, 
And the question of gender was was part of it. I mean, what I noticed in 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 many translations, in in the majority of translations, was that um, translators tend to first um, assume that the beloved we're talking about, a gendered beloved, is God, which is questionable, open to debate. <laughs> Secondly, uh, make it masculine um, without explaining the, the reality, uh, which is not very hard to explain. You, you just need to put a note <laughs> and, and and explain that, we, here we go. We will, I, I don't know the gender because the Persian text doesn't have gender. Um, voila. So um, that, that was, that was, uh, that was a, a part of it. There were other issues um, like the the question of coherence in especially in Masnavi um, as a narrative text. I mean, essentially narrative text. It, it, it's a mystical didactic um, work of Rumi, but the great majority of it is uh, basically a series of uh, tales um, of mystical um, nature and me message. Um, and the, the 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 question of coherence in 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 uh, Masnavi is is an interesting one, and that there have been works I have cited in my book uh, that looks uh, that that look into the uh, the apparent in incoherence of of the narrative techniques uh, Rumi uses in Masnavi. Um, he he starts a tale. He talks about something, and then in the middle of it, there is another one. There's a mise en abîme, uh, as we say in in in, in narratology. Um, he talks about something else. Then in within the parentheses, he opens another set of parentheses, and and so on and so forth, in a way that at the end of the tale, you co you're completely lost. You <laughs> you 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 don't get what what's going on. Um, which is quite similar to the way Quran or other or, or, or even the Old Testament uh, tells you story tell you stories. Um, I'm I'm not sure if Rumi was uh, consciously imitating uh, sacred texts in in his Masnavi, but yeah, that that's a, that's a pretty um, um, comparable uh, to cases. And um, interestingly, the question of coherence. Um, is important in in um, I mean <laughs> manifests itself in 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 a in an interesting way in translation, um, especially in prose translation when when translators try to put some order in the disorder in the apparent disorder of the of the source text. Um, voila. So um, from those hermeneutic uh, analyses, we, we we can go and go, go towards um, questions of ethical nature. So to what extent translators should allow themselves to regulate the original text, to to interpret it, to 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 give an exegesis instead of a translation of the original text. And um, voila, the, the, I tried to evaluate different eras and different waves of translations and different translators in terms of their ethical tendencies uh, without trying to be too critical, um, especially while, let me just um, point this out. I, I was, uh, when, I, when I was trying, when I started uh, working on this, on, on this uh, research, on this question, of translating Rumi, I was um, very critical of what we call popular popularizing translations of of Rumi. Those that uh, are even difficult, uh, uh, whose uh, source texts are even difficult to pinpoint. <laughs> so they're they're so open that we we don't we we, we can't actually call them translations. Uh, they're not translations. They're adaptations at best, and uh, texts written in uh, under the inspiration of Rumi <laughs> at worst. Um, I was very critical of those translators, especially from North America, especially uh, from the end of the twentieth uh, and the uh, and and up to date, um, up to up to now, up to date. Um, I was very critical of them, but then <laughs> with with me maturing over, I don't know, 15 years of working in this field, um, 
I um, um, turned, uh, well, I, I became uh, more overt, uh, more more open, more accepting of them. Um, at least recognizing their, uh, I've come to accept them as um, as as um, as useful um, in their own function, which is popularizing Rumi. <laughs> that is uh, probably if 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 um, the only translation of Rumi was the text in in the, the were published in the late 19th or 20, early 20th century, um, Rumi wouldn't have been known to this extent in, in the world. So we do owe them a debt <laughs> to those uh, popularizing translators who, uh, the majority of whom don't even speak Persian, don't even read Persian, um, and, and, and their works are retranslations. So voila. Um, um, I don't know. Well, there's one 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 uh topic left and i i'm i'm gonna uh, leave you uh if, if um, leave you ask me the question probably about the politics of reception yeah. um but yeah no i think it's so yeah. helpful to hear you um speak in broad strokes because um you've hit a lot of really important points um I will note to the listeners that you have, I think one of the really um, fantastic contributions of this book is um, you've just mapped out for us, like charted the different translations and you've like compared and you're very generous, I think as a scholar, even though you have all of these technical attributes that you're signaling, like you say in chapter one and chapter two, you kind of highlight how certain things have you know, the literal uh, translation, as you say, gender was one of the components, um, form, lexicon, all these other dimensions. Um, but you are also modeling for us how this plays out with, let's say, translators like Arbery, you know, who are coming from an Orientalist context, or Nicholson, um, you're moving to kind of uh, contemporary translators as well, um, Barks, kind of as you're signaling to towards the end as kind of these, not really translators, but, you know, um, individuals who are adapting or really just doing a vernacularization from another text, right? So they're participating in a different translation process, quote unquote. Um, so I think you're kind of giving us these examples, showing us how these different translations, actually what it, what the implication of it is to the text is what's happening in the first few, ta- uh, first few chapters. And then you really streamline into focusing on Rumi. I did want to pick up on one thing, um, just because I think it was so fascinating for me, is, um, and you kind of mentioned it already, how it, you talk about this in chapter three, really, um, how the music component really is like this challenging aspect of translation, especially with Persian poetry. We You get this in a lot of Sufism is that often the poetics was something that was embedded within music and meditative practices. So the poetry was one dimension of multiple other dimensions that were a part of meditation or zikr or, you know, these aspects, not only in Persian context, but also we have some of this in South Asian context, like Kabali. So what, how does this make translation? I mean, reading this chapter, I almost was like, oh, translating is impossible, right? Like, because how do you try? And you have, you know, charts and meters and show us this is a fantastic chapter, have the, the musicality also has this other dimension. And how do you translate that? Right? So did you want to flesh out this chapter a little bit for us and our, our re- sure. This, uh, listeners and our questions of untranslatability. Sure. Uh, yeah, before going back to uh, to the politics of translation, uh, which I'm less interested in in general, um, I, I love the technical aspects of it. Uh, when, as soon as it becomes more semi- semiotic, and I love it. Um, I have uh, published four articles on on the on the music of Persian poetry and on the music of Rumi's poetry um, and um, and its relation to classical music, of Iranian classical music, uh, two in English, two in French. Uh, the, 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 the ones in English are in uh, Rumi, Molana uh, Rumi Review, MRR. The, that's the, um, to my knowledge, the, the only uh, specialized uh, international journal um, specialized in Rumi studies. Um, 
And the other one is probably more technical, and it's uh, well, well. The first one in, in, in the one um, published in Molana Rumi Review is the uh, is is an article about uh, the, the music of Rumi uh, Rumi's poetry and how um, uh, what, what role. I mean, it, it's not necessarily. I'm not talking about translation there. I'm, I'm talking about how music is a um, is an inseparable component of, of Rumi's uh, poetry. The other one is is more general about uh, Persian poetry and Iranian music and the way they are interconnected, um, structurally interconnected, not uh, just metaphorically. We we don't talk about the language of music or the music of language in in a metaphoric, figurative way. Actually, there is, uh, there are. Um, <laughs> structural interconnections. So the best, the, the epitome of this phenomenon is um, is Rumi's divan and Rumi's uh, ghazals, Rumi's odes as, you know, ghazals sonnets or odes, uh, depending on your translation. Um, this is the epitome of, of the, the musicality of Persian classical poetry, mystical or non-mystical, Sufi or non-Sufi. Um, so uh, what I try to show in these articles and, and in this chapter um, is that, um, again, to put it in a nutshell, to, 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 to say it sim in the simplest way possible, um, if, if not simplistic, <laughs> is that um, mystics, um, well, let's talk about the poetry first. So the structure of Arabic, Persian, Urdu and um, Ottoman Turkish poetry, they're all based on a system, a metric system that is called Aruz or Arud uh, in, in, in Arabic. Um, that's a poetic system. Um, there are different theories uh, as, as to the origins of, of, this, uh, of this metric system. Metric system is basically uh, how you uh, create rhythm in a verse. That's that's a metric. You, you have a meter, that is the number of syllables and the arrangement of syllables in a single verse or in a hemistich, and how you measure uh, these lengths to uh, the the length of the total verse in a way to equalize uh, uh, the number of um, uh, syllables to make it rhythmical to make the uh, a, a linguistic utterance rhythmical. So that's that's the definition of a meter. Um, so um, <laughs> according to some theories, it's it's based on Sanskrit. Um, according to other theories, it's it's purely um, it, it comes from Semitic languages, Aramaic, and then Arabic, um, which is probably more well. I'm I'm. I'm not well, I mean, I'm not familiar enough with Sanskrit, especially not Sanskrit poetry. But uh, to my knowledge, uh, Hebrew and Quran, Hebrew Bible and Quran um, have similar metric structures, similar, not exactly the same, but similar metric structures. Um, there's a very interesting uh, work, uh, a poetician called Henri Méchonique in French who worked on the translation of Bible, say, saying that basically mm -hmm. all uh, translations of, of Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, in all Indo-European languages are false because they don't respect the, the rhythm. That, that's a big claim. And he actually writes probably over 10,000 pages to justify that. <laughs> he has uh, six, six, I guess, five, six uh, volumes of poetics, of, of uh, uh, poetics of text I mean, in general. Anyhow, so uh, back to the question of poetry. Um, of, of Rumi's poetry, uh, Rumi as a mystic, um, in my opinion, um, well, that's not my opinion, actually. He he has, he, there's a paradox about Rumi. Um, he shows his hatred of language and of poetry in many occasions. And at the same time, he's one of the most prolific uh, authors of the entire history of human like, world rich literature, he has one thousand uh, one hundred uh, 
28,000 verses. And a verse by a verse, I mean a distich, uh, that is two verses. Um, so, so, sorry, 60,000 and 60,000 distichs and 128,000 verses. So that that that's uh, much bigger than Homer, Milton, and Dante altogether. <laughs> so he's 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 a prolific author while he hates language. So how how can we explain that paradox? Well, Rumi, like many other uh, mystics, uh, think that the human language is not capable of expressing. You know, by expressing, uh, well, I don't, I didn't, I just just use expressing in my technical language of, in, in in that chapter. Um, if if you take the time and effort to to read the through the first part of the uh, uh, chap the, the second chapter, um, what I I talk a lot about semiotization, how we semiotize the the world, how a phenomenon that that exists outside our head, basically outside our mind, is turned into a sign, uh, which is the word, the linguistic word, the verbal term that we use. Well, I, I look at the tree, I call it tree, I call it deracht in Persian, I like it, I, I call it shajar in, in Arabic. Doesn't matter how I how I I call it in terms of like pronouncing what phonemes I pronounce, but there is a reality outside uh, my mind, that's the tree itself. And then the word I use to refer to it. So this word, this is a sign. The signifier is the, the sound you hear and the signified is the reality of the, of the tree. So for mystics, the reality of their mystical uh, experience on the one hand and the reality of the ultimate truth that is God, if we may call it, <laughs> um, on the other hand, is so complex that no natural language can semiotize that, can, can find a sign to mean, to signify that reality, that, that truth, that ultimate truth, or even the, the, the quality of that mystical experience, that ecstatic, that ecstatic instant in terms of you get out of yourself, you ex taught you you get out of your stats your 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 um your being basically you get out of your being you get out of yourself so that ecstatic experience cannot be expressed in words to put it simple that there's no sign there's no word there's no language to 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 talk about that uh so what shall we do at the same time, some someone like Rumi cannot resist the urge, this 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 pulsion that that that's a the interior, this internal force that pushes him towards talking about this experience, about this reality, this 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 ultimate truth. So the paradox that this this um, dialectical um, conflict. Uh, within Rumi uh, materializes itself in the form of 128,000 verses of, well, at least half of which, the, the ones belonging to Divan, the, the odes, are not only linguistic utterances, but they're literally, and I have shown it in my, in my analysis, um, they're literally musical phrases. Because you you don't need a melody, you just need to read the the poem of um, of, of Divan, of, of just any poem of Divan, and you are playing music, you're singing basically. The the poem is 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 being sung automatically. So this is the way. This this is the strategy. That's that's his strategy that devised by by Rumi and similar poets in Persian literature, mystical literature, and, and non-mystical. Um, but specifically Rumi, um, devised by, by the author to not only communicate his message through language, using the language, but using a language of ecstasy. How? By reading and by singing and by dancing and rotating um, uh, on his rhythmical poems, you um, reach a certain um, 
level of consciousness, let's say, or in you, you reach a, a, a certain state of um, ecstasy, of trance, that the message of the poem comes to you, is absorbed by, your, by you um, in a more efficient way, probably. <laughs> um, I'm more of an analyst than um, um, experimenter. <laughs> I have not done it myself. <laughs> But um, I I can I can see how it may work for for people, and how can we translate that? Um, we cannot. I'm trying to translate. Uh, I, I I'm I'm putting together an anthology of uh, of Rumi, uh, and I'm calling it the musical anthology of Rumi. Bad news is that it's in French, um, because there are a lot of translations in English. French is particularly. Poor <laughs> uh, Divan is uh, the the Kazals of Divan, the the odes of uh, Divan is are are uh, very poorly represented in in French. So um, uh, as a French speaker, like I tried to start at least uh, my first attempt uh, in in French. I'm, I'm not I'm not a translator. I'm 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 a translation studies scholar. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a great translator myself. I I do confess that, but. My way of translating those, uh, and and we'll get to that. Well, first of all, uh, they're extremely literal, so I try to, I try uh, in the translations to be as close to the semantic content of poems as possible, as mm -hmm. as structurally possible. I mean, grammatically, linguistically possible in French. As close as possible, even uh, even if it my text will be very hard for French speakers, modern French speakers to read, and I don't care. And we can talk about that. <laughs> that 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 that's a question I, I have talked a lot about in my last chapter, the ethics of translation. Um, and the second um, component is um, the music. I'm I'm going to read those poems in Persian, uh, put them somewhere on the net. Uh, give the link to all the readers in uh, readers of my uh, translations to go and listen to the poems while reading the French text. So this way they can get um, a taste of how the poem sounds in the original language and what they mean literally. The first level of meaning, the, the first level of signification. So that's that's my way of uh, tackling untranslate untranslatability. <laughs> you also had trouble saying it, which is good. I don't feel so bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. used to saying it in French. Untraduisibilité, en fait. That's ah, yeah, that feels much better. That's much nicer. I like it. Yeah, it's so interesting, and I could hear you talk about this for hours because there's such so many dimensions, and as you say, there's like this inherent tension, but it's also this inherent tension that's just not about translation, but as you kind of talk about in the introduction, it's an inherent tension of just kind of mystical traditions, and then it's an inherent tension of Rumi, right? And so there's just like consistent paradoxes across all of the theoretical frameworks or kind of the case study itself that I think it's just so rich, and your book is so rich and dense in that way because you really get into the details and like the really minute um, aspects of it, which, you know, uh, I think for translation studies scholars, this would just be such a, a wonderful juicy book to engage and sit with um and I think we're both edging to get into the reception politics because that's where we're, I'm, I'm excited about it but um it was the the last few chapters that I really found fascinating in terms of like you've set up the fact that here are all the challenges and limitations of doing translation in this context is it seems like it, there's something that's going to be left behind or something that's lost or something that's untranslatable right yet all these translations, especially in the English language, abound, right? Um, and there's so many quotes that I've highlighted, and I wanted to read one that you have in your conclusion on page 272 that says, yet translation exists against all odds. In fact, Rumi translations not only exist, but are abundant. The case of Rumi shows how translation lies at the core of a conflictual zone where the translator is constantly divided between opposing sentiments of joy and sorrow, the joy of gain and the sorrow for loss. Just as Rumi's internal urge to express the ineffable pushed him to the 
to compose tens of thousands of verses while constantly decrying the ineptitude of human language, as you were just talking about, Rumi translators could not resist the urge to share the wealth and depth of his message with their respective readers while understanding the essential limits of this feat. And so this is, I, I think you frame it in different ways as like a discursive distortion, or these are adaptations or hypertext, right? Um, and as you also said earlier, it's these texts that are perhaps more of, have, you know, verged farther away from the literal translation, but have captured a different tone in their adaptations that have been resonant in kind of the Rumi mania phenomena. So what do we do with this is the question. <laughs> And I think this is what you're grappling with in the last two chapters of the book. Well, what what do we with what do we do with this? Um, well, we, we need to accept it first. <laughs> um, the second thing is we have to let the reader know of what's going on. Of of the we have to put them in the know. Um, they have a right to know about the the reality of the original text. Um. That's why I'm a big fan of um, uh, explanatory, explicative notes by the translator um, that share the challenges with the reader. That just a simple uh, example was, for instance, the, the question of gender. I, I would love to see all translators uh, bring up this 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 matter with with their um, uh, readers. Explain that we we never know there are opposing views on what is uh, what is the nature, what is the meaning, what is this um, ultimate interpretation of the bashic, profane. Um, images of mystical poetry and and how we will never be able to give a definite interpretation and and let the readers know about it um so and the third thing in my opinion that's 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 more my opinion that's more debatable i'm a big fan of literal translation because i think um you can you can never recreate that, that. That's the paradox I talked about: um, adaptations or open or um, literary translations. I, I was arguing that, there, that the paradox is that you will never be able to recreate neither the rhythm nor the rhyme nor the internal semantic uh, rhetoric, the the figures of speech of Rumi and the um in the um uh target language so why should we sacrifice the semantic content on the altar of readability and literarity of the uh target text so let's have a target text that is hard to read full of notes um probably embellish it with other other things i don't know uh, add music to the to it it's like we live in the 21st century you can always add audio to to a book i mean links you can always add links uh put, put the music somewhere but let's be as close to the semantic content of the original text while explaining it in explicative, but not exegetic uh, notes. Let's not interpret the text, just explain the situation that when I, I have given the example of um, meta-translative meta or meta-linguistic text talking about, for instance, the gender and the other explicative uh, notes that talk about the situation. I don't know, there's somewhere in Masnavi where um, Rumi talks about um, not washing a shahid, a martyr, because he's uh, covered with blood. Well, you have to explain this. This is allusion to uh, some Islamic uh, ritual that you have to wash the, the dead body. But you don't do that with the martyrs. 
Um, so th these are things that are uh, very hard to understand if you're not familiar with the original culture, with the with the target, uh, with the uh, um, source culture. And th th these are the uh, information. I mean, this is the kind of information you need to share with your reader. Um, and voila, um, for me, untranslatability is um, is a destiny which we should do our best to avoid. We should uh, we should challenge it. Um, and well. <laughs> This brings me to this um, debate, this um, polemic uh, debate about open translation and, and, and literal translation um, taken by uh, Lawrence Venuti in a, in a sharp turn from his original position because he was the, um, he, he's the prominent, probably the most prominent um, translation studies uh, scholar in the English speaking world um, today. Um, it's been so since at least um, I mean, for, for, for two or three decades. Um, so <clears throat> first, he was uh, a big um, uh, supporter of, of literal translation and ethical translation. And what we he, he was the um, the main um, uh, translator uh, of uh, Antoine Berman, who's who's uh, the French uh, theorist. Um, who inspired by the German idealist uh, theories of, of uh, translation in the 19th century, um, advocated for uh, what he called um, a foreignizing translation. Uh, so Lawrence Venuti was his trans translator in English. He 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 was the one who, who developed his uh, Antoine Berman's theories in, in English, but uh, in his most recent work, um, he had a sharp turn, and and um, he would uh, he would argue that um, probably foreignizing, foreignizing translation is not necessarily a literalist translation that. Um, the the text the original text is um uh is open to to growth to interpretation there is no interpretation there's no meaning basically there's no truth about the text and any truth can be um attributed to it hence um any open translation no matter how far from the original text could be could has its value well i i tried to <laughs> um polemicize with with this point of view um uh, in, in the book uh, basically arguing that the fact that the truth is not attainable doesn't mean that we should not go towards it and in translation uh the, the because because we we are doomed to untranslatability it doesn't mean that we can translate anything and call it translation uh, there's this notion that I uh, borrowed from uh, Victor Hugo. Um, he talks about a truth uh, as an, an asymptotic, an asymptote. Asymptote is basically um, when there's a direct line that approaches, uh, a, a curve that approaches a direct line without ever reaching it. So it's like a tangent. Now, that's a mathematical notion and that Victor Hugo uses about truth, but I, and I use it about translation. I think translation by nature is an asymptotic uh, operation. You get as you try to get as close as possible to the truth of the of the original text to the original text uh, to its letter and its content uh, as as much as possible without reaching it. But it's okay. <laughs> Just because we cannot reach it doesn't mean that we should stop trying. Voilà. That's that's my. Um, ultimate position on, on this in this debate of um under untranslated untranslatability and literal versus open uh targetist versus uh source oriented uh translation in translation studies which is an interminable debate by the way yeah. in translation studies yeah we, we, we can never reach a conclusion <laughs> but i think you know one of the things i really appreciated about your concluding chapters and as i'm hearing you talk is precisely that like i think there's like ethical responsibility 
I'm like really struck by your framing that there's an ethical responsibility of the translator or adapter to be transparent about what it is that they're doing and how it is that they did it. Um, and I think in an era in which Rumi is being consumed at the level it is, um, I really appreciate that kind of responsibility as like a, an, you know, honesty as a way of proceeding. And so mm-hmm. it's not necessarily to stop what they're doing, but to be honest and clear about what it is they're doing and how they're doing it, right? Because as you say, we can't stop it because it's already has happened. And people are responding to, let's say, certain forms of translation, as you say in your book, by Coleman Barks or Kabir Halinsky, but you also highlight that, you know, maybe translations by Nicholson or Schimmel in certain instances have been a little bit more literal, right? And so it, and it hasn't always been consistent either, right? So I really do appreciate that you've laid it all out for us and that you've mapped it out for us. And I know for me, I found the book so productive and I learned a lot not fully translation studies and semiotics, but I definitely tried to grapple with some of the more technical and theoretical aspects of it. So I'm really, really impressed, like amazing stuff that you're doing. Really cool. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to sit with it. Um, what are you working on these days before we say goodbye? I've taken up a lot of your time and you've really guided us through a lot of the dimensions of the book and we haven't even gotten to some of the, the details. So I really encourage our listeners to pick up the book. But um, you kind of hinted at something that you're working on in terms of French translation. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Or is there other projects that are also on the go for you after you've completed this important, really, like it seems like a long-term project that you've been working on. So congratulations. But yeah, what's Thank up you. for you the next few years i'm uh i have two sets of projects uh short term and uh medium to long term so the short term project is uh uh to publish uh two articles on uh the translation of rhetoric persian rhetoric um and how it could be challenging and how it could be quite easy actually <laughs> I'm, I'm sharing with you the conclusions <laughs> of, of my article <laughs> of, of comparative uh rhetoric because they're um uh, i'm using again uh rumi's uh, po- uh poetry as uh as my corpus to show um how persian rhetoric could differ from uh, european languages and in what ways it can uh present a challenge and in what ways it can actually be easy quite easy that's that's the, the, the that's the article that's short short-term project um in french unfortunately i don't know for you oh it's readers. great yeah, of course french <laughs> not unfortunate at all yeah um and and um i have finished translating um i have finished the first draft of my anthology musical anthology um in in uh, french uh, musical anthology of uh, Irumi. Um, lots of uh, lots of uh, uh, odes and uh, quatrains, but mostly odes, but some quatrains of of Rumi in in French. And as I explained, I will have um, an audio component with with the book, um, so that the readers can listen to the original um, poem and read it, the, the meaning of it in in per, in uh, French. Um, with with the texts, I mean, it depends on the uh, editor, but I I prefer to have the Persian text and the French text um, um, next to each other, en regard, as as we say in in French, um, so so that they can they can see the harmony that the visual harmony of of Persian uh, of of Rumi's uh, poetry, because there's also harmony in that. Um, um, it's not just musical. It's it's also in the in there's the kinetic harmony in the dance of Sama. There's there's the visual harmony of the graphic aspect of, of poetry. It's that's just one level. Music and language are just two levels of many levels of of, of signification, basically signifying modes of of uh, Rumi's poetry. In the long run, um, I'm turning my um, semiotic. Uh, view over to Shiism. I am interested in uh, uh, working on uh, Shiism and um, Shia symbolism, Shia narratology. I mean, looking at, at religion as a text, I, I tried to find similar similarities between Christianity and Shiism, uh, structural similarities. Um, 
so it, it's a multi-level semiotic analysis of of Shiism as a text. If if we if we take this phenomenon, this religion, this uh, uh, branch of Islam as 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 a text, how can we analyze it? How can how, how can we describe it from a semiotic stand semiotic standpoint? Uh, its symbols, its narratives, um, its structure, its rituals. Um, voila. So I'm 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 gonna go to a similar but different at the same time uh, topic. Ah, très bien. <laughs> it's like fabulous. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> Everything sounds fabulous. Um, and, and I know some of our listeners will be really interested in some dimensions of your future work. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for Thank being you. with us and um, sharing all this amazing work. And I know our listeners will want to pick up the book and engage with it so much more. And I know there's a time difference. I really appreciate that you made the time to connect with us as well for the podcast. Thanks, Mir. Thank you for having me. And that was my conversation with Amir Sadakat about his new book, Translating Rumi into the West, A Linguistic Conundrum and Beyond. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for supporting the new books in Islamic Studies podcast. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, take good care. <laughs>